welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. As news breaks of a further kidnapping of schoolgirls in Nigeria by the Islamist extremist group Boko Haram, we ask our correspondents in Washington and London about the potential for international intervention to rescue a group of nearly 300 young women who have been in captivity for more than three weeks now. We examine the state of politics in South Africa, where voters go to the polls tomorrow for the fifth time since the ending of the apartheid era 20 years ago. But first, we return to the escalating crisis in Ukraine, amid increasing concern that the country is sliding inexorably towards civil war. I'm joined by our correspondent, Daniel McLaughlin, in Kiev. Dan, the situation on the ground in Ukraine took a severe turn for the worse over the weekend, first with the appalling tragedy in Odessa in which 46 pro-Russian activists were burned to death in circumstances which are disputed, and subsequently with many more deaths and fighting in the east of the country. Germany's Foreign Minister Frank Walter Steinmeier is quoted today in a number of European newspapers as warning that Ukraine is just a few steps from civil war. It's hard to disagree, isn't it? It is hard to disagree. As you see, um, the, 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 uh, the fire on Friday night in uh, Odessa really uh, inflamed the situation, not only down in Odessa, which up to that point had been a relatively peaceful city uh, without major problems between um, the pro-government supporters and, and, and people who are more inclined towards Russia. But that fire uh, that did kill, uh, at the moment, we think 46 people, uh, pro-Russian supporters who were trapped inside a building, um, and it came after a day of fighting in the streets between more pro-Russian supporters and um, and, and pro-Kiev supporters, um, really did um, inflame the situation down there and across the country. And Dan, you, you wrote in the Irish Times on Saturday um, of the, the many obstacles that are facing the, the interim government in Kiev in the month ahead. It needs to keep some kind of unity of, uh, of the country intact ahead of a presidential poll on May 25th. How would you rate the chances as things stand, of that poll um, being held? Uh, it's very, very difficult to predict at the moment. Uh, Russia is certainly saying that it, be, um, it would be absurd, really, to hold a poll, uh, a presidential election, at the end of the month when we have a country that is on the brink of war and when we have seen over the weekend this anti-terrorist operation, as the government calls it, uh, moving up a gear and, and, and government forces taking on um, pro-Russian gunmen in the east of the country. We've, we've got a very, very uh, tense few days ahead of us as well this week. We've got the uh, Victory Day uh, holiday on Friday, which is when traditionally across the Soviet Union, Russian speakers uh, commemorate the, the Soviet Union, uh, the, the, the Soviet Red Army's victory over fascist Germany. Um, and then on the 11th, on, um, on Sunday, we've got two regions out, out in the east. We've got Lugansk and Donetsk planning to hold uh, referendums. These are the, 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 uh, the, the rebel um, uh, militants out there uh, who, who are holding official buildings across both regions. They're planning to hold a referendum on independence on the 11th. So we've got those two big events coming up against the backdrop of this increasing fighting out in the east. Uh, further destabilization in the south and the, the tension that's, um, that's come from that fire and the deaths on, on Friday night down around Odessa. So we've got a very, very unstable uh, situation across the east, uh, increasingly in the south, and the government is really up against it to try and uh, hold the country together and try and uh, establish some kind of order over those regions ahead of those planned May 25th presidential elections. And how much control, Dan, does the government in Kiev have of the regions in the east? I mean, th there would be a sense that it has lost control entirely, or um, is that too bleak an assessment? Uh, 
Um, it has very little control over um, the Donetsk region and over the Lugansk region. Um, some other areas in the east are still appear to be in government control, but um, it's very hard to say how much uh, influence the central authorities in Kiev have over the police forces, for example, in these regions. We've seen uh, in Donetsk, in Lugansk, and down in Odessa, um, a complete breakdown in, in uh, police authority, in police control, and in, the, and in the central authorities' control over local police agencies. So down in Odessa, where we have this increasingly tense uh, standoff and situation between um, what, what you could call pro-Kiev pro supporters and um, more pro-Russian supporters, um, both sides really agree on the fact that, that the police were largely to blame for doing absolutely nothing uh, to prevent that fire and to, to stop the fighting that took place in the streets ahead of that fire on Friday, to stop it at an earlier stage. Um, and it just escalated and got out of hand with, with uh, absolutely horrendous consequences. So we, we don't really know how much control the central authorities have over the police forces in the different regions. And even some of the military units who've been charged with putting down this uh, insurgency in eastern regions, we've seen them in some being very reluctant to take on the militants. Um, so uh, each day, really, we're seeing things unfold. The government is trying to send new forces from different regions out to the east, hoping that they'll follow orders more closely and will and will be more willing to take on the insurgents. But um, but it's it is really uh, hanging in the balance at the moment, and we really don't know which way things will go in the days and weeks ahead. And another development today, Don, was the. Uh European foreign ministers met in Vienna um, in a Council of Europe meeting in Vienna and afterwards the, the Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov said and something you alluded to a minute ago um, he said it would be unusual to hold a, a presidential poll on May 25th in circumstances in which as he put it um, the, the government in Kiev is is um, engaged in a war with, 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 with its own people. Um, is that a reasonable comment, do you think, for Lavrov to make, um, or just a reasonable observation, or is this more evidence of Russian interference and Russia, Russian attempts to destabilise the situation there? Well, certainly Kiev sees this as uh, basically all the events across the east and the south as being provoked by Russia. They say that Russia will not allow the new pro-Western government in Kiev to establish itself, to stabilise the country, and to move in what... Uh, the Kiev government hopes will be a strongly uh, pro-Western, pro-EU line and court over the over the following months and years. Um, and um, even though the, the government does does acknowledge that some of the grievances that people in the south and east uh, have and are airing are legitimate, the government says that it is willing to devolve some powers to those regions to look again at the status of the Russian language, uh, to hold a, re a referendum of some sort on increasing the, power, the, the powers of the regions and taking some power from Kiev. But um, when, you, when uh, the government talks about the gunmen on the streets in the east and talks about the overall uh, plan of Russia, it sees the two things as inextricably linked. Um, and it believes that Russia's main intention and its immediate uh, goal over the coming weeks is to ensure that that presidential election does not go ahead and that an event that would... Um, give the new authorities in Kiev some more legitimacy and some more stability. Um, uh, uh, Kiev believes that, that Moscow is determined to make sure that that doesn't happen, just to, to keep the country in a constant, uh, unstable state. 
uh, and to prevent the new authorities basically establishing their control over the entire country. And uh, as you mentioned, Dan, I suppose one of the imponderables there is really what Russia really wants from this situation. And um, I think the last time we spoke, I put the same question to you. you you've been a, an observer of Russian politics um, for a very long time. Is it any clearer now uh, what Vladimir Putin is attempting to achieve from this? Is it, uh, is it a question of trying to stop Ukraine turning towards the EU? Uh, does he actually want to annex more of Ukrainian territory? Or does anybody know? I think... Um uh, obviously, it's very, very hard to know, but uh, there is more of a feeling now among people watching Russia, I think, that if Putin can, have, can um, achieve his goal, which is to prevent Ukraine or, an in, or, or Ukraine in its, in its current form, in its current borders, moving towards the West decisively, if he can, if he can stop that happening without an invasion of the East, um, he would prefer to do that. Um, He's, he, Russian forces, according to Kiev, according to uh, the United States, according to the European Union and NATO, are involved uh, in destabilizing eastern regions. We know back in March that Russia annexed Crimea. That was the first stage of this, what, what the West calls a major destabilization campaign in Ukraine. Um, the next phase, they're saying, the Western analysts and Western officials are saying, um, is this the, these moves in the east to uh, make the country ungovernable uh, without sending in Russian forces on a major scale, as happened in Crimea, as Putin eventually admitted happened in Crimea. Um, if there was an obvious move of Russian forces across the border, that would bring down much, much heavier sanctions on Russia. Um, and we see the European Union and the United States making clear in recent days that a trigger for much tougher sanctions, sanctions on entire sectors of the Russian economy, would be obvious Russian destabilization of Ukraine ahead of the May 25th presidential elections. If the West, uh, according to what President Obama and Chancellor Merkel said uh, in their recent meeting in Washington, if the West sees clear Russian attempts to prevent those elections taking place in an orderly and fair manner, um, then there will be much broader sanctions against Russia. So that will be the trigger for those sanctions. Um, but if, if Russia can achieve, um, can, can basically undermine the Ukrainian government and can prevent those elections taking place without clear interference from Russian forces, then perhaps Moscow would be satisfied with that. At the moment, we're seeing what Kiev says is an obvious destabilization campaign orchestrated by Russian agents in the east. Um, and at the moment, it's unclear whether the May 25th presidential elections can, can go ahead. And the comments that we've heard from Sergei Lavrov today and other Russian officials in recent days suggest that Russia will, believe, will, will call those elections illegitimate if they take place. In the current considering the current circumstances, current circumstances that hold in the east and the south of the country. Um, and finally, Dan, just to put you on the spot, how many days do you think the Ukrainian government has uh, to to get a grip of this situation before it does actually slide out of their control? Are we talking a matter of days, or could this crisis drag on for some time yet? It really depends on how severe the escalation is in the days ahead. I do think we're looking at crucial a crucial uh, five, six days, let's say. Um, the Kiev government is saying that they expect potential uh, terrorist attacks, major attempt, attempts to um, escalate the situation and destabilize the country over the coming days. That means on the 9th of May, around the 9th of May, that's Friday's Victory Day, uh, 
uh, holiday. And it means with the, um, the rebel referendums in the two eastern regions of Lugansk and Donetsk, um, what the situation will be next week, uh, we really don't know. Um, we're heading into very tense times. Uh, the sense of uncertainty, the sense of danger, the sense of fear among Ukrainians and among Russians in Ukraine seems to be growing by the day. Um, and we really don't know what the next few days will bring or what we will face next week, whether we will wake up on Monday with two eastern regions, Lugansk and Donetsk, and the, the rebel pro-Russian authorities there who are holding uh, official buildings across those regions, whether they, we will wake up on, on Monday and they will say, we held a referendum yesterday and two big industrial regions of Ukraine now consider themselves to be independent. Um, that would certainly change the situation. And at the moment, it's very, very difficult to predict what will happen in the hours ahead, never mind uh, days or weeks ahead. But there is no clear um, resolution to this crisis and no clear uh, outcome that would that would satisfy Ukraine and that would satisfy Moscow and would satisfy the increasingly divided Ukrainian and Russian populations of this very large country. Okay, Dan, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for that. 20 years ago, South Africa held its first free and fair election after the apartheid era was finally brought to a close. And on Wednesday, South Africans go to the polls for the fourth time since to elect a new National Assembly and provincial administrations. One thing is certain about the outcome the African National Congress will be returned to power. I'm joined by Bill Corcoran, our correspondent in South Africa. Bill, there are some 33 registered parties in this election, but just three that really count in terms of the national poll. Tell us about them. That's correct, yes. Um, obviously, the African National Congress, the ruling party that uh, brought an end to apartheid. Then there is the main opposition party, which is called the Democratic Alliance. Uh, that has is a party that has been growing uh, steadily over the years. It, um its predecessor in 1994 only garnered 1.73% of the vote, but in the last municipal elections in 2011, they nearly hit 24% of the vote. And then the third party is uh, the new kid on the block. Um, it's headed up by a, a maverick young politician. He's probably one of the best-known politicians in Africa. His name is Julius Minema. He used to be the uh, African National Congress League leader, but he was expelled in 2012 from the party um, for undermining the party president, Jacob Zuma. His party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, is a extreme left-leaning party and is um, looking to garner votes from the poor, um, of which there are many, many of them in South Africa. Now, we know the ANC is going to win, but what would be a, a good result for the ANC? Um, what kind of percentage uh, does it need need to get? And um, conversely, the, the opposition parties, um, what kind of inroads would they be hoping to make? OK. Well, um, for both the ANC and Jacob Zuna, um, over 60% is, is a crucial uh, uh, result for them. Anything below that, and uh, the party will be seen to be on a steady decline if you look at the, uh, the electoral history of the ANC, as far as back as 2004, they hit nearly 70% of the vote. Um, but they've, they've steadily declined since then. Um, and if they were to fall into the 50s, that is a sign that um, you know power is slipping away and that they're, they're the people that they liberated who have a huge loyalty to them, um, the black majority uh, have a huge loyalty to the ANC for liberating them from the party would be starting to, to leave them in significant numbers. 
Um, if that were to happen, um, they'll still get into power, but Jacob Zuma's position might come under threat because um, he is seen as a, a weak link uh, by many people within the ANC. He's involved in a number of different scandals, corruption, uh, sex scandals over the last 10 years, and the latest one, which is to do with his rural home in Encandler, uh, is seen as, as the worst yet. He um, he he had he had the government did security upgrades to his rural home, and they came in close to 14 million euros. And there was an outcry over this, and uh, the public protector, uh, the South African version of the ombudsman, um, did uh, an investigation in that and found that he and his family on duty. Uh, benefited from the upgrades. He had things like a swimming pool, a visitor center, a chicken run, a cattle corral uh, built in as part of the uh, security features. Interestingly enough, the the pool was described as a fire pool, (laughs) as one way they were trying to um, show that the pool was something to do with security. Um, So his position is definitely under threat um, if if the... um, party goes close, uh, 60%. You might recall, our listeners might recall, um, only a few years ago, the previous president, um, Thabo Mbeke, was recalled by the ANC when they thought he wasn't doing uh, his job properly and that he was undermining the party. So it's, it's, it's something that there's a precedent for and it could happen again. Just on the on Zuma and the, the 14 million euro security upgrade of his home, he did, as you reported in the Irish Times this morning, attempt to give some kind of defence of that this week. And he talked about an incident in his family many, many years ago when he said his wife or one of his wives were, was raped in that house. And that's why this security upgrade was justified. How has that played out today? Has that sort of swayed um, public opinion in his favour in any way? It's too early to say, uh, um, to, to get a, a broad sense of public opinion. But um, certainly um, coming across in the media, uh, there are a number of commentators and newspapers that are questioning the timing of his comments. Um, coming out two days before an election at an editor's breakfast, um, it seemed it, 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 you don't want to be insensitive, but it, it could be read that it, it was um, an electioneering um, strategy to try detract from his um, bad standing under the Incandler scandal. And Bill, finally, you say that the ANC, if they come in at under 60%, it will be a disappointing result for them. But it's still, I suppose, by any standards of a normal democracy, it's still an astonishingly high support rate for a party that's been in power now for 20 years. How has the ANC managed to maintain its grip and power for so long? Well, the African National Congress is the oldest liberation movement in Africa. It's uh, over 100 years old. Um, it has one of, in, in its ranks, it has one of the most iconic leaders the world has ever uh, seen, Nelson Mandela, uh, who has, he, he in, in the West, we, we see him and idolize him, but you can multiply that by 50-fold and how he's viewed in Africa. Um, and the party has structures, political structures, that reach into every town, village, throughout the country. It is a, a, an awesome uh political machine to behold and um, it really really knows how to how to work the political system in unfortunately where it struggles is in the delivery of services um, the, the, the elements of corruption that have crept into its ranks uh, things like that are undermining it um, but it's a slow process and it will be a slow decline but the DA are playing the long game here they all they would hopefully 
want to see is to maybe match their municipal results from 2011 on the national level, which would give them 24%. Um, they're looking at 2019 or even further ahead at 2023 uh, general elections. They have some very strong young black uh, leaders coming up through the ranks. Um, in Hauteng, uh, they have this young gentleman who I met while on the campaign trail there, guy called Musi Mayanani. He's in his early 30s, a very well-spoken, well-educated young black man from Soweto. In uh, Cape Town, they have this very strong lady called Lindy Magpuku. She's the parliamentary leader, and uh, she takes no prisoners. And, but these guys are still young, and they're still learning their ropes. So um, it's, this, is, this is going to be a very competitive election, but it's, it's not going to see a sea change. Uh, but it does give indications as to what will happen in the future if the ANC doesn't um, uh, pull its socks up and start tackling corruption, delivering services, and giving the people what it, they want and need. Okay, Bill. Well, we'll be watching the voting and the results with interest. Thank you for that. We'll leave it there. On April 14th last, the radical Nigerian Islamist group Boko Haram, which translates as Western Education is Forbidden, kidnapped up to 300 teenage girls and young women from a school in the northern state of Borno. Some 270 are still missing. Over the last couple of days, a chilling video has emerged in which the leader of the group described the girls as slaves and said they would be sold on the market. And as mentioned at the outset of the programme, news is breaking of the kidnapping of a further eight girls by Boko Haram in northern Nigeria. International reaction to this story has has been slow, but both the US and British governments have issued strong statements in the past 12 hours. I'm joined by Simon Carswell, our Washington correspondent, and Mark Hennessy, our London editor. Uh, Simon, what did the White House have to say about this situation overnight? Well, um, yesterday we had the Jay Carney saying that President Obama had been briefed on the situation a few times. Um, I guess there's lots of concern in the US about what has happened in Nigeria, and there's an offer of help to the Nigerian government from the Obama administration, but really there's no specifics on what that might involve and specifically how they may help the kidnapped girls. Um, they are saying, the U.S. is saying that Nigeria must take the lead on this, but there are no plans at the moment to send uh, any troops, any U.S. troops to Nigeria to help the Nigerian authorities. And the U.S. government has said that it's sharing intelligence with the Nigerian authorities. But again, no specifics. Uh, Jay Carney listed the series of U.S. programs and steps that have been taken in Nigeria, but most of those predate uh, these kidnappings. And really, they're very general. They're, they're aimed at uh, strengthening the criminal justice system in Nigeria, improving the ability to, to com- combat these IEDs, these improvised explosive devices, and how to expand economic opportunity for women. Um, so again, they're not willing to be tied to any specific details, but um, they are offering to help. And the State Department has said that Sarah Sewell, who's Undersecretary of State, one of the more senior diplomats at the State Department, will be travelling to Nigeria in the coming days. But again, the State Department has also asked, well, are, are you expecting U.S. troops or other significant U.S. assets to be sent to Nigeria? And the State Department has said, no, they don't at this stage. And what do you think, Simon, has prompted the, the statement at this time then by, by the White House if, if there isn't really a lot that practically can be done on the ground? Is it a response to growing uh, public concern in the United States about this um, Well, incident? I think that they are certainly responding to the public concern and this, this story has got a lot of media attention uh, as indeed has the, uh, the kidnapping of more girls in, in, Nigeria, in Nigeria as well. So there is a lot of interest in it and yes, 
there is a lot of this in response to that. But again, it seems to be very much just lip service at the moment. No specifics yet. Um, and uh, again, we're waiting to hear what the reaction from the State Department, both the State Department and the White House, is to the, the, the report of, of more kidnappings coming out of Nigeria. And uh, Mark Hennessy in London, William Hague also commented, the Foreign Secretary, uh, today on the kidnapping. What did he have to say about it? A very similar rhetoric coming from the Foreign Secretary where he talked about how these girls are being used by Boko Haram as the spoils of war and that the actions are disgusting and immoral and saying that it should show everybody across the world that no support should be given to organisations such as Boko Haram or to anyone like it. Now, he also went on to say that uh, Britain was offering practical help, but again, as Simon said, uh, as is the case in Washington, the British are not giving an indication yet as to what the words practical help actually mean in this particular context, and uh, it is unlikely that uh, they would be giving any further information about it at this time. Um, there's an interesting, interesting, I suppose, background context to this, Mark, in, in that, um, or maybe there's no connection, but um, Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister, recently uh, caused some controversy when, when he said that Islamic extremism was on the rise and that the West must be prepared to take sides and so on. Um, is this an example? I mean, is, is William Hague actually signalling signaling that the West is prepared to take sides in this particular case? Well, he's not going that far at the moment, but you, you have to remember that in the context of, of William Hague, he has been involved in a campaign uh, against rape as a, an instrument of war and where he has uh, worked alongside the actress Angelina Jolie. So it is an issue that is very, very close to his own heart and has fed into uh, the campaign uh, that uh, the two of them have been running for the last 18 months or so. And uh, that uh, that uh, there is a degree of considerable frustration, it has to be said, at the failure of the Nigerian authorities to take uh, stronger action themselves uh, to deal with this issue, and particularly at the failure of the Nigerian uh, president to actually even come out until yesterday to actually speak about uh, the, 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 the problem and uh, the fact that these girls had faced the kind of dangers that they now face. If you look at, at a, in a longer time period, uh, there is a history of uh, British military involvement in West Africa. And in fact, unlike uh, Iraq and uh, Iran and elsewhere, it's actually still one that uh, generates a degree of pride in Britain, where uh, Blair ordered uh, special forces into Sierra Leone in uh, 2000. And they were seen to have had uh, a key and instrumental role in helping to bring about the, the end of the civil war there. And, uh, in fact, Sierra Leone still looks on uh, very fondly uh, to that British uh, military intervention. And that, obviously, uh, given the context of everything that has happened uh, since 2003 in Iraq, is actually a rare moment of light uh, for the, the British um, uh, establishment in that regard. Yes. Um, but clearly, as you say, an intervention, I suppose, of that kind is not really on the cards now. So what do you think is likely to happen next? Now that William Hague has spoken, I, 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 he can't just leave this issue alone now and drop it. Um, no, they're not going to leave it alone. But equally, the idea of putting forces on the ground uh, would appear to be problematic, uh, at least uh, at best. Uh, the Nigerians would be very, very wary about accepting uh, foreign military intervention, uh, even at a specialist level from either the British or the Americans, even 
even if they need it, and in fact, they'd be particularly reluctant to, to uh, accept it uh, if they, the need is, is actually uh, shown to be clearly visible because we're into issues of national pride and everything else. Uh, even if those forces were on the ground operating in northern Nigeria, trying to uh, track down people who you don't know where they are, uh, they could be uh, shifted across borders. There are very large numbers of them, assuming that all of them are still alive. It would actually be a very, very difficult um, military task for any uh, foreign government to get involved in, and they would need to have a greater sight of the possible scope of such an operation before they'd be volunteering to put men on the ground, even if they were asked to do so. And uh, as of this moment in time, the Nigerian authorities are showing no sign of issuing any invitation. Right. And Simon Carswell in Washington, uh, I suppose the same question for you. Uh, Now that the, the US government has shown an interest in the situation, is there any, any indication as to what might happen from here? Uh, would they take an active interest in it from here? Or was that statement really from the White House for, for public consumption? Well, I think it's very much a holding statement as well. Um, you had the Secretary of State, John Kerry, in Africa last week, and he has said um, that the US will do everything possible to support the Nigerian government to return the women to their homes and also to hold the perpetrators to justice. So I think they're really just assessing the situation to see what they can do. They don't want to step on the toes of the Nigerian government. I mean, uh, Boko Haram is well known to the U.S. and to the State Department. Um, The U.S. designated as a terrorist organization last November. Um, And they've reported on um, various attacks carried out in northern and northeastern Nigeria. So they are familiar with this organization. So it's not a new thing for the State Department or the White House um, on this latest, uh, these latest kidnappings. But again, uh, really just waiting to see, and there's a statement expected later today from John Kerry, um, and also then the White House is expected to say something in relation to the, uh, the further kidnappings that have taken place in Nigeria. So again, we'll wait to see how the story develops over the coming days. Okay, indeed. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, thank you to Simon Carswell in Washington and Mark Hennessy in London. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Chris Dooley, goodbye.